beautiful time of worship. I love the way that they pick out the songs that are perfect for what we study. That is just God's anointing on that. Well, good morning. My name is Anjanette Walshhauser, and I'm part of the teaching team here at Christ Chapel and Women in the Word. And happy St. Patrick's Day to all of you. I love seeing all the little pieces of green popping out throughout all of you ladies. Um, St. Patrick's Day has always been one of my favorite holidays. We are, my family is Scots-Irish, and so I'll claim that, but I think it's just because I just loved going to school and trying to find the people who didn't wear green. I just thought that was really fun. And then God, in his great um, gift, has given me a son who was born on St. Patrick's Day. And so today is my little Joseph's third birthday. So happy birthday to him. And, um, and if that wasn't enough, he also allowed me, I have three children, and two of my um, three children are adopted. And my middle daughter, Annika, her adoption day was actually on St. Patrick's Day as well, 2006. Um, adoption day is when you go to the court and you finalize everything. You sign all the papers and everything's legal and done. So, um, because I love St. Patrick's Day, and what a day to celebrate with Adoption Day, right? I would go to Old Navy. I don't know if any of you know this, but Old Navy has, like, this T-shirt. So I don't know if you still do it, but they used to be $5, and it would say, Happy St. Patrick's Day. I have my shirt on right now. Because um, I was so excited, I would just go and buy our family St. Patrick's Day shirts. Because now I had a reason to celebrate this holiday that people just ignore. And... Um, and my husband, after I had done this a couple years, was like, really, how many shirts do we all need for St. Patrick's Day? So the last one that I bought was um, in 2008, which was the day that my son was born. Now, we did not get him until he was two months old. And so on the day that I bought the shirt, I had no idea that I was wearing his birthday shirt. So I have his birthday shirt on today. So that's my praise today. Um, we have been studying Isaiah. Today we are going to look at Isaiah 49 and 50. Isaiah is a story of God's redemption. Um, I love the title of this series that um, Isaiah, God's Salvation Symphony. And one of the reasons why that's so special to me is because that's how I came to Christ, was through some words in Isaiah. I grew up in a family that um, we went to church regularly. We moved around a lot and so one of the first things that my parents would always do is we would move to a new city in a new state and my parents would find a church and we would go. Um, so I always went to church but I didn't quite understand who God was and what his grace was for me. God seemed very distant. He seemed almost cold and um, I just didn't believe that he had a clue who I was or cared anything about me. And I was angry. I was an angry, rebellious teenager because my dad was carting me around all over the place. And I felt like he was choosing his career over choosing his family. So when, when a youth pastor sat down with me and opened up Isaiah and shared with me, if you look on your verse sheet, it's the first verse I put there. Isaiah 40, verse 25 and 26. To whom will you compare me? 
Or who is my equal, says the Holy One. Lift your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He brings out the starry host one by one and calls them each by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Well, as I said, I was a rebellious teenager, and one of the ways that I was seeking to find purpose in life was through astrology. I had, um, somehow I felt known um, in looking into astrology, so I was fascinated with stars. I knew all the constellations, and so when the youth pastor showed this to me, I was like, really, God knows every single star? He's the one who put every star in its place, and not one of them is missing. He knows them by name. And the youth pastor said, yes, and God knows you by name. And he knows every single person that he has created. And for the first time, God was personal to me. He told me that in the beginning of the summer, when I was 16 years old, and by the end of the summer, I had placed my faith in Jesus Christ, because I was fascinated with God's salvation symphony in the book of Isaiah. Um, I believe that when we come face to face with God's truth, it changes us forever. And we automatically have a response because his truth is so rich and it meets us right where we are. Turn with me to Isaiah 49, please. I entitled this lesson, um, God's Steadfast Pursuit of His People. Because that's where we're going to see over and over again today. is how God steadfastly pursues His people even in the midst of their rebellion. Remember, we are watching Judah, who has been rebellious, that um, has... Isaiah has been telling them that God is going to put them into enslavery... Um, Someday they're going to be enslaved by the Babylonians. And so we are going to look at how God has reminding them of his steadfast pursuit of them. And you can look on your outline. The very first way that we will be reminded of this is we will see God commissioning Jesus for a relentless mission. So in Isaiah 49, starting in verse 1, we're going to look at verse 1 through 7 here to begin with. And this portion of scripture is the second of four servant songs in the book of Isaiah. We looked at the first servant song with Lynn in Isaiah 42. And all a servant song is is where God is setting apart Jesus as his servant. And in this particular portion of scripture, verses 1 through 7, it is Jesus himself speaking directly to the people of Judah through Isaiah the prophet. Starting in verse 1. Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my birth, he has made mention of my name. I want to stop right there for a moment and remind each of you that God and Jesus were together at the beginning. The Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit were all together in the very beginning of time. This was not God creating Jesus to be a servant here. God and Jesus were together in the beginning. Verse 2. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. 
Well, we see two word pictures here. We see the sharpened sword and the polished arrow, both of which are offensive weapons, right? It's not a shield. It's not to protect. The purpose of a sword and an arrow is to be used to cut through flesh, right? I mean, maybe gruesome, but it's true. That's what the purpose is. And Jesus is saying that God has designed me to be a weapon. Look with me on your verse sheet at John 1, verse 1 and 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Again, we see the idea that Jesus was with God, that they are the same. And then verse 14, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. So Jesus was the Word of God. Then look down to the next verse, Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Just in the same way that God's word cut through my flesh and into my heart, and I saw that God loved me personally, that's what God's word does. So we see as God commissions Jesus for a relentless mission, the very first part of his mission is to penetrate man's heart as a weapon. God uses Jesus himself as a weapon to speak truth and also gives us the word of God to penetrate our hearts. Going on to the second um, part of his relentless mission is to display God's splendor. Starting in verse 3. He said to me, You are my servant Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. But I have said I labor to no purpose. I have spent my strength in vain and for nothing. And yet what is due me is in the Lord's hands, and my reward is with my God. Part of Jesus' mission was to display God's splendor. Now, it's interesting when we look here at um, verse 3 where it says, You are my servant, and then he refers to him as Israel. And that can be confusing because when we look down a little bit further, we see that also part of Jesus' mission is to gather Israel. Well, Israel can't gather Israel unto himself, right? And so why does God choose to call Jesus Israel here? Because remember, from the beginning of the nation of Israel, they were set apart Their purpose was to be different and to show that they worshipped the one true God so that the nations around them would worship God to display God's splendor. But Israel failed in doing that. We see that with Judah, right? We see that they took on worshipping idols. They no longer were set apart to show the one true God and to display his splendor. And so what Jesus is doing here is stepping into that role and saying, I will display God's splendor and I will do so perfectly. I will point all nations to to God the Father and display his splendor. Follow on, continuing with me in verse 5. And now the Lord says, He who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to himself and gather Israel to himself... For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has been my strength. 
He says, It is too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. This is what the Lord says, the Redeemer and Holy One of Israel, to him who was despised and abhorred by the nations and to the servant of rulers. Kings will see you and rise up. Princes will see you and bow down because the Lord is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. So here we see the final aspect of Jesus' mission here, and that is to save both the Jew and the Gentile. Jesus came to earth as the Word of God. He was formed in the womb, in Mary's womb, to be his servant. He wasn't created in Mary's womb. He was there in the very beginning, because the Word was God, and the Word was in the beginning. But he was formed to be the servant in order to carry out God's mission of steadfastly pursuing his people. Us. Because it's not just to the Jew, but it's also to the Gentile. To us. We are part of that. And we know that one day every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess. And that from the ends of the earth, God's splendor will be displayed. So what is our response? Because I believe that God's word begs for us to respond to it. And our response is that we also are to live as a weapon in the hands of God, to be used for his glory, for his purpose, and for his kingdom. The second way that we see God pursuing his people is that God will bring freedom to the captives. Starting in verse 8 on chapter 49, we're changing speakers here. This is no longer Jesus speaking as the servant of the Lord. This is God speaking directly to his people. And he's promising restoration. Verse 8. This is what the Lord says. In the time of my favor I will answer you. And in the day of salvation I will help you. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people. To restore the land and to reassign its desolate inheritances. God brings freedom to the captives. He brings restoration to Israel. We see him promising them saying, I'm going to bring you back. I will keep my promises. It says that he will restore the land and reassign its desolate inheritances. Remember back in Genesis, God made a covenant to Abraham. He said, I will make you a great nation, and I will give you land. This is God reminding them, I'm going to keep my promise. I am going to bring you back out of this ultimately At the time of the millennium, this will be fulfilled. But right now, Judah, I'm going to restore you. I'm going to bring you back because God keeps his promises. Look on your verse sheet, Deuteronomy 7, 9. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God. He is faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. God says to the captives, come out and be free. God has a a history of setting his captives free, right? He did so with Moses in leading his people out of Egypt. He promised to do so with Judah, leading them out of Babylon. And he also promised to do that with us. 
Galatians 5.1 tells us it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. God offers us freedom through Jesus Christ who died on the cross that we no longer have to try to come before the Lord with sacrifices that would please him, that would somehow make up for what we have done because Jesus took that penalty himself. We're free, he says to us, each one of us in this room, come out of darkness, come out of your slavery to sin and be free. The next point under God will bring freedom to captives is nothing stands in the way of God's purpose. I love looking at the rest of um, verse 9 through 12 there, and it's a beautiful picture of how God is pursuing his people. He says that you will feed beside the roads that once were barren, that neither hunger nor thirst, even the sun's heat will not take you down. I will have compassion on you, and I will lead you beside the streams. God said that he will lower the mountains and bring up the highways. He will gather people from all around because nothing stands in the way of God's purpose as he brings freedom to the captives. And so what is our response? Our response is the same response that Isaiah has here in verse 13. Shout for joy, O heavens, rejoice, O earth, burst into song, O mountains, for the Lord comforts his people and will have compassion on his afflicted ones. Our response is to rejoice and that we are to live in freedom by a faith in God who keeps his promises. Isaiah is reminding himself and others of God's character, and that's part of his promises. He will keep his promises. But then let's look and see how Zion responds, Zion being God's people. In verse 14, Zion says, The Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. God moves mountains in order to free his people, and five minutes later, they feel forsaken and forgotten. How true is that? But you know what? God does not grow tired or weary of encouraging us. Look at, on your verse sheet at Isaiah 40, verse 28. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. God knows we get discouraged. And he's willing to pursue us and bring hope to the discouraged. We've seen how God's pursued his people in one, commissioning Jesus for a relentless mission. Two, he's brought freedom to the captives. And now we see how God brings hope to the discouraged. I mentioned earlier that as a teenager I was um, rebellious and, and had issue with my father. I, um, I was angry with him for moving us um, around. And, and even though God restored me back to himself through salvation in Jesus Christ, he did not restore my relationship with my earthly father. And that was hard. There was just distance and separation there, anger that I couldn't let go of. And I didn't feel like he was pursuing me. Well, by the time I was at the end of college, a family in our church came to me and said they were going to go to serve as missionaries in Ukraine and asked me to go with them and homeschool their children. I loved the idea. I thought it sounded like a great idea. Um, But I had to say no. Because God said to me, you can't go and serve me on a far-off land when at home in your own family, 
there's no restoration there. So I thanked God for the no. And I thanked him because it also prompted me to begin to pray for restoration with my father. Several weeks after um, continuing to pray this, my dad came and picked me up at work and um, took me to the bank. I forget the details, but he had to co-sign something. I don't have a loan, so I don't know what he co-signed, maybe opening an account or something. But anyway, he came and picked me up at work. We went to the bank, and on the way home, he stopped, pulled over into an empty parking lot and turned off the car and said, I need to talk to you. I said, okay. He said, I I don't know you, and I want to. I don't want to walk you down the aisle one day and not know who I'm giving away. I was floored. And he said, would you meet with me once a week so we can get to know each other? And so we did. He came to the um, school where I was going to college, and we would sit out on the grass um, for an hour or two at a time. And this is my dad who was, I felt, married to his job. Didn't take long lunches, coming and taking and spending that time with me. And he told me about how I had hurt him in my rebellion. And I told him how I felt like he didn't care about me. And how I felt like he had abandoned me, even though he lived in the same house with me. And God restored our relationship. Look, several weeks after us meeting together faithfully, this family came back to me. And they said the woman we asked to homeschool our children had to back out because of health reasons. And so as they were praying, God, who do you want us to take with us to homeschool our children? My name kept coming back into their mind. And so they came to me and they said, I know you told us no, but God said to ask you again. And I was able to say yes. Because God had moved mountains in order to bring hope to the discouraged. And with his full blessing, I did get to go and live in Ukraine for a year homeschooling their children. And I praise God because he does not grow tired or weary of bringing hope to the discouraged. And that's what we see here starting in verse 15. Because God takes the time to show Judah, his people, I love you. I love you as a compassionate mother. I love you as a courageous warrior. I love you as a constant lover. Look with me in verse 14. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on this child that she had born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are ever before me. God is saying to them, just like a mother can't forget this nursing baby, I'm not going to forget you. And even though the mother may walk away, I will not walk away because I'm going to take you with me. I've engraved your name on the palms of my hands. Now, as Christians, we automatically think of Jesus, right? And how he has engraved our names on the palms of his hands and the scars when he died for us on the cross. And then going on, looking at 17 verse 21 here we get to see God encouraging his people as a mother would her child. That God is saying, I see you in your heartache, but hold on because abundance is coming. 
In verse 17, he says, Your sons hasten back. Those who laid you waste depart from you. But lift up your eyes and look around. All your sons gather back to you. Hold on. Abundance is coming. And then he says, Though you, you were ruined and made desolate, and your land laid waste... Your people have been so devoured that it feels like that they're too small even for this barren land. But then we see in verse 20, it says, Yet they will say in your hearing, this place is too small for us. The people will become so plentiful that even a rich, fertile land will feel too small. God reminds them that it's not always going to stay this way. I was sitting in a doctor's office a couple of months ago, and I read an article. Um, a parent, one of those parenting magazines were around, and I, and I read the article that, that the title was The Ultimate Act of a Good Mother. Well, being that I'm a mother, I thought, well, maybe I should know what this is. And so I read the article, and it said, The ultimate act of a good mother is that when your child is crying, that you put your arms around them and tell them everything's going to be okay. I thought, really? That's the ultimate act of a good mother? But then as I was studying this, I thought, isn't that what God's doing? He's wrapping his arms around those people of his that are discouraged, and he's saying everything's going to be okay. It's not going to stay like this forever. And then we get down to the last portion where he, he... brings hope as a compassionate mother and and talks about, in verse 22, See, I will beckon the Gentiles, and um, they will bring your sons in their arms and carry your daughters on their shoulders. The kings will be like foster fathers and their queens like nursing mothers. We talked about this in the last couple of weeks. God can use anybody to provide for his people, right? He can use kings who acknowledge God but also acknowledge all the other gods. They don't worship the one true God. And that's what God's reminding them here. I can use Gentiles who will be set up as kings, almost like foster fathers to you. Because isn't that what a foster parent does? They step in for a time period. And they say, I will stand up for you. And I will protect you. And I will provide for this orphan. And God says, that's what I'm going to provide for you as well. The next way that we see God bringing hope to the discouraged is as a courageous warrior. I'm going to read, starting in verse 24 of chapter 49. Can plunder be taken from warriors or captives rescued from the fierce? But this is what the Lord says. Yes, captives will be taken from warriors and plunders retrieved from the fierce. I will contend with those who contend with you and your children. I will save. I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh. They will be drunk on their own blood, as with wine. Then all mankind will know that I, the Lord, am your Savior, your Redeemer. Those are gruesome words, aren't they? But what an encouragement, knowing that God loves us as a courageous warrior. And he's telling his people and he's telling us here that he is willing to contend with anyone who contends with us. That he will, it's almost as if he's going to stand up in front of us and take the blows or the punches of our enemy. Because he loves us as a courageous warrior. And then finally, we see that God is like a constant lover. Starting in verse 50, um, chapter 50, verse 1 through 3. This is what the Lord says. Where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? 
Or to which of my creditors did I sell you? Because of your sins you were sold. Because of your transgressions your mother was sent away. When I came, why was there no one? When I called, why was there no one to answer? Was my arm too short to ransom you? Do I lack the strength to rescue you? By a mere rebuke I dry up the sea and turn the rivers into desert. God is making the point here that he did not divorce his people. And they know that um, according to the Jewish law set up in Deuteronomy, it's very easy for a man to divorce his wife. She could do anything to displease him and he could issue a certificate of divorce. And God's saying, I didn't do that. It's your sin that sent you away. And not just that, but I called out to you in that. I called out to you in your sin and you didn't answer me. Their sin brought consequence, but God did not leave them. He was constant. He was a constant lover. God pursues Israel with a steadfast love. He pursues his people like a compassionate mother, like a courageous warrior, and as a constant lover. And so what is our response? We must recognize our value to God. Recognize our value to God. He will pursue us with a steadfast love. Luke 12, 24, on your verse sheet. Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. There are no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. How much more valuable are you than the birds? We are valuable to God. So if you're in the midst of your sin or your sorrow, remember that God pursues you with a steadfast love, and he sees you as valuable. Now we're going to transition again, um, starting in verse 4, and this is the third of the servant songs. So we see Jesus Christ speaking again himself, directly to Judah through the prophet Isaiah. And we see that God pursues his people by sending his son to suffer for our redemption, starting in verse 4. The Sovereign Lord has given me an instructed tongue to know the word that sustains the weary. God perfectly equipped Jesus to provide for us. He did so by giving him the words that sustain the weary. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Jesus himself said, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. We are to listen to the word of God because he suffered for our redemption and he knows the words that will minister to us when we are weary. We also see that Jesus has patient endurance. And we see that in verse um, 5 and 6 where we see that he has not drawn back as rebellious, that he offered his back In verse 6, to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard, I did not hide my face from mocking or spitting. God allowed Jesus to model for Judah patient endurance, not to shrink back. God allowed Jesus to model patient endurance to us. Because in the midst of our hardship, We don't want to offer our back. We don't want to keep our face still for whatever mocking and spitting may come. 
We try to get away from suffering, not stand there and endure it. But what else Jesus modeled to us was a courageous dependence on the Lord. Because the reason why he was able to stand there and offer his back is because he knew he was not alone. He knew that God stood right there beside him. And we see that in verse 7. Because the sovereign Lord helps me, I will not be disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like flint. I know I will not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. He who brings charges against me, let us fa- who will bring then charges against me? Let us face each other. Who is my co- accuser? Let him confront me. So how do you show courageous dependence on the Lord? What are you able to do in that? Um, there's a, a story that I came across of a woman who was getting a job in a textile mill during the Depression. So she was in New York City, um, and she was her first day. She was excited to be able to have a job because people didn't get jobs. She sat down at her sewing machine, and the supervisor showed her what she was to do, that she was to sew the garments and put them in the basket next to her. And he said, now, if your machine gets jammed, call me, and I will help you. And so she said, okay, and she sat down to do her work in hours of tedious sewing the same thing, one after the other, putting them in her basket, sewing the same thing, putting it in her basket. Well, inevitably, her machine got jammed. But she was scared because she didn't want her supervisor to think that she was incompetent or that she somehow should maybe be replaced by somebody else. And so she tried to figure it out on her own. And she wasted time. She eventually got it but wasted time trying to get her machine unjammed. Well, at the end of the day, the supervisor came and said, why is your basket not as full as the person next to you? And she said, I did my best. And he said, no, you didn't. Your best would have been to do what I told you to do and to come to me so that I could unjam your machine. And I think, I am like that woman. I want to go to God and I want to say, but I did my best. Yes, I'm, I'm in this place that feels dark, and I'm in this place that I feel like it's a mountain that has to be moved, but I did my best. And God says, come to me. Depend on me, and that's what Jesus models here. As he suffers for our redemption, he models being, having a courageous dependence on the Lord. And what is our response? Remember Christ died for you and hold firm to the faith you profess. That's what Judah needed to do. And we know that there is a remnant that remains faithful. They had to hold on to their faith that God keeps his promises. We have to hold on to our faith that Jesus died for us and we are free. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He loves us, he pursues us by commissioning Jesus for a relentless mission, by bringing freedom to the captives, hope to the discouraged, sent his son to suffer for our redemption. Hold firm to the faith that you profess. Now these last two verses, um, there's almost a twist. Because as I was reading this and studying this, I felt like, God is answering. It's like he's heard my question of, God, how do I respond to you? When I come face to face with the fact that you pursue us, 
with this steadfast love, God, how do you want me to respond to you? How do we respond to God's steadfast pursuit of us? Verse 10. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the word of his servant? Let him who walks in the dark, who has no light, trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. The first thing he wants us to do, he says, who among you fears the Lord and obeys the word of his servant? God wants us to respond with fearing the Lord and obey his word. Now, many of us, when we see that phrase, fear the Lord, we begin to get nervous because we feel like that means that God wants us to be afraid of him, and we think that's not really God's character. How does that work? Well, fear the Lord is more of, a, of an act of worship. It's awe. When we see this, when we look back through our outline and we're reminded of how God pursues us, our response should be awe and worship. And then we are to obey his word because he lays it all out here for us. And then he says, if you're in darkness, if you're in that place, not darkness of salvation, not darkness of hell and the grave, but if you are in that place of sorrow, of trial, Trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. How do you do that? How do you trust in the name of the Lord and rely on God? Proverbs 18.10 says, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. Now here's the challenge in that. Because when it's dark, aren't we tempted to turn the light on by ourselves? We don't like to be in the dark. From a very young child, we don't like to be in the dark. We want a nightlight. We want to know where that nightlight is. We want to make sure that the lights work. We don't want to have to get up in the middle of the night and go to the bathroom and have to stumble through, right? We want to turn the light on. So in your trial, are you willing to run to the Lord and still feel like you're in darkness? Are you willing to rely on his name just as Judah here needed to. Here they are being told these, these words when they haven't even been enslaved yet. They're like this impending doom, and, and then you're telling us when we're there, we're supposed to be patient and wait and rely on your name? Do we try to do our best? And yet we don't rely on God. So what happens when we don't do this? He tells us in verse 11, when we try to light our own fires. But now all you who light your own fires and provide yourselves with flaming torches, go walk in the light of your fires and the torches that you have set ablaze. This is what you will receive from my hand. You will lie down in torment. Are you trying to light your own path? Psalm 119.105 says, Your word is a lamp unto my feet, a light for my path. John 8.12, when Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Only God can take you out of the darkness. Lighting your own path is just going to lead you to sorrow 
and disappointment. When we're in the darkness, we panic. Don't panic. Remember, God steadfastly pursues his people. And respond to him with awe and worship, obeying his word, trusting in his name, and relying on God. Let him be the light for your path. Let me pray. God, you are awesome. You love us in a way that we can't even comprehend. You pursue us in an amazing way. Thank you for that. Pray for each one of us that we would seek you, that we would respond with awe, that we would obey your word, that we would trust in your name and rely on you. Thank you, Lord. Give us strength. Thank you that you stand next to us. In Jesus' name, amen.